Welcome to God's Refinery. This is one of the greatest stories of all time. A boy sold into slavery by his jealous brothers. He seems to be making good for himself and then disaster strikes and he's falsely accused and he's imprisoned. And then he seems to be making good for himself even in prison. And another false dawn is left to languish in prison. God is refining Joseph. The unthinkable happens. He rises to become the second ruler in all Egypt. He is overseeing food supplies, developing a crisis plan for the upcoming famine. And famine bites, not just in Egypt, but in the surrounding region. And of all things, his brothers appear in front of him. They don't recognize him. What next? Revenge? No, God has been working in Joseph's heart since he was a youth. And all along he has been trusting God and that trust has been refined. And he has been refined in his obedience to God. But now these men step into the refiner's fire. They are going to be refined by God. God is going to use Joseph to transform these violent, godless men and make them the the forefathers of the people of God. It's an incredible story of God's overruling, of God's commitment to his promises to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. God had said he would be a God to them and their descendants after them. And their descendants are a bunch of losers, a bunch of godless men. But God isn't finished. There's a lesson we need to remember for our own lives. God isn't finished. And we're right in the middle of the drama of God working in their lives. What will happen? What way will it go? And the reason all of this matters is because God works similarly in our lives. Whether to rescue us from our own rebellion, or to bring us closer to him, or to refine us and to deepen our faith, or to work in the lives of those around us. So we need to be familiar with how God works. But as well as being a picture of how God deals with us, It's also a picture of God's great salvation. In the Old Testament, God paints a thousand miniature portraits of Jesus. And he's doing it here. Here is someone unjustly accused who finds himself having faced punishment that he didn't deserve. And yet after that, he he rises, as it were, from the prison, from the the grave almost. And he's seated in the throne. And now that he's seated in the throne, Joseph rules all of the land for the good of his people. And when his brothers come to him in sorrow for their sin, what do they find? They find welcome, forgiveness, and they find life. And that's that's an echo of the story of Jesus bearing the punishment that wasn't his, rising from the dead, seated at the right hand of God in heaven, ruling all things for the good of his people. And when we come in repentance and faith, we find welcome, forgiveness, and life. So this is one of the greatest stories ever told because it is an echo 
of the greatest story ever told. And there's three things that I want us uh, to see as we, we walk through these two chapters this morning. First of all, there's an increasing pressure. Here's God refining. And we see an increasing pressure. The brothers are back in Canaan. A year or so, perhaps, has passed. And yes, they had been forced into uncovering their guilty secret, at least to admit it to each other. And they knew that God, in chapter 42, was poking at their consciences and awakening them. But now they're a little bit further on and nothing has happened. And maybe things have settled down in their minds. The problem of Simeon being held a prisoner in Egypt and of having to take Benjamin to Egypt to get more food, that's on the back burner. And we often do that, don't we? Something brings the past or brings our own heart to light or causes us to think, I really need to get right with God now. I must deal with this. And then the pressure eases and we push it into the background and we try to carry on. Or perhaps there's some aspect of our lives we need to grow in and we see it and we think about working at it and we maybe start to work at it, but then the pressure eases and we keep going as if nothing had happened. But God won't let these men do that. Nor will he let us do that. And we see again, like in chapter 42, an increasing of the pressure. And I just want to highlight quickly a number of ways. There's the pressure of a broken world. There's a famine going on. And it hasn't finished. It's going to keep on going on. And food is running low. And they're going to have to go back to Egypt. They're going to have to face their past. You see, sometimes the brokenness of this world, whether it's famine, accident, disaster, illness, is a way that God refines us. Sometimes it's a way he increases pressure on us to help us see our sin. And sometimes it's a way he uses in us to, to refine us and to, uh, to help us to grow more Christ-like. Or to deepen our trust. The pressures of living in a broken world remind us that we can't do it all ourselves. The pressures of living in a broken world expose our weaknesses and our sin and our flaws. And that's what it does to these brothers. It's pushing them back to the place where they're going to have to admit their guilt. Then there's the pressure of people. Judah speaks up at this point, And we're going to see him coming more to the front. And he says to his father... The man warned us solemnly. You will not see my face again unless your brother is with us. And Judas speaks again later on that says, The man said to us. And he repeats it. The man, the man. The pressure is there because of the prime minister of Egypt. A man whom they know by his Egyptian name, Zaphonath Paneah. And they, he's putting pressure on them. His suspicions, they don't understand that it's their brother Joseph, but his suspicions, his questioning, his demands have upped the pressure and they can't go back without Benjamin. And Jacob has a go at them. Why did you even tell them you had a brother? This, what were we supposed to do? We didn't know he would say this. It was out of their hands. The pressure 
of circumstances, the pressure of Joseph is being used by God to work out his purposes in their lives. To bring these men to repentance. It's the same with us. God uses all kinds of pressures, difficult circumstances, demanding people, frustrating occasions in our lives to either bring us to him or to develop us under him. Increasing pressure. It may be that God has been doing that in your life. Maybe to bring you to repentance like the brothers. Or maybe to deepen your walk with him like Joseph and Jacob. His aim is to change us. So whenever you find yourself facing pressure, ask first, what is God doing here? Is there something I need to grow in? Do I need even to start off by coming to him? Let pressure take you to God to change you under God. And we start to see that happening. Let's just take a little moment to notice some of the changes happening. Judah steps forward. Verse 8. He speaks forthrightly, respectfully, directly to his father. He's about 43, 44 at this stage. He places himself as surety or a guarantee for his brother Benjamin. He says, I will bear the blame. Verse 9. Literally, the Hebrew is, I will have sinned before you. I will have sinned. Here's a different man from the one who said, let's sell Joseph to these slave traders. Let's make a pound or two off him. And who lied to his father. This is a different man, isn't it? From the man who had said, I'm not interested in the God of my father, my grandfather, my great-grandfather. I'm away to these Canaanites. And he lived amongst them for 20 years, becoming more godless, more immoral, didn't care who he slept with. And then whenever uh, one of his own family was found to, uh, to be pregnant uh, outside of marriage, what did he, he say? Burn her alive. What a heartless hypocrite he was. But Judah is changing. God is refining him. God has brought him to repentance, I would say. God has been working in him. And Jacob seems to be changing too. Jacob previously had a, had a faith that was strong, but over these later years of his life, it seems to have disappeared as he... Uh, or at least weakened, and he's turned into uh, an old, self-pitying, despairing man who doesn't trust God. But now he seems to rally, and his faith seems to be reignited. And he, he starts off chapter 43 a bit like a doting old man. And chapter 43, as it moves on, he starts to come alive again and to give instructions, take gifts. Then he says, take Benjamin. And then he says most significantly, verse 14, And may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, so that he will let your other brother and Benjamin come back with you. May God Almighty. That's the name that God had used when he spoke first of all to Abraham, Jacob's great-grandfather in Genesis 17. It was the way 
That's how Jacob's grandfather in Genesis 17. It was the way that his father Isaac had spoke to him in Genesis 28 when he was going off to get a wife. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and increase your numbers until you become a community of peoples. Descendants. God Almighty made a promise. And it was how God had spoken to him after returning after 20 years away in Genesis 35. I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and increase in number. A nation and a community of nations will come from you and kings will come from your body. He's It's as if this name captures God's promise to him and his descendants. And now he recalls that old name. And he prays that the God who made the promises to him and his descendants would remember the promises that this God would grant him mercy. And yes, he says in the next verse, if I am bereaved, I am bereaved. I don't think that's a lack of faith. I think that's an expression of trust, of leaving it in God's hands. I'm sending my son. I don't want to, but I'm sending him. I'm trusting God. So Judah's being changed in the refiner's fire. Jacob is being changed in the refiner's fire. Joseph has been changed in the refiner's fire. You know, isn't this uh, the lesson for us to learn? That was the pressures increasing to let it refine us and make us, to bring us to God or to make us more Christ-like. So off they go to Egypt. But before we leave this first point, there's a third pressure increase. There's the pressure of a guilty conscience. Benjamin and the brothers set off. They arrive in Egypt. Zaphonath Panea, the prime minister, or Joseph, as he's called here, sees them arriving. He instructs his steward and says, prepare a feast. And the brothers were a bit freaked out. Who does the prime minister of Egypt want with us? We're just ten simple Hebrew farmers. And you can, they, they think, uh, it's the silver, it's the silver. And you have all this, almost this comic moment of conspiracy theory. Verse 18, look at it. Uh, verse 18 of chapter 43. We were brought here because of the silver that was put back into our sacks the first time. He wants to attack us and overpower us and seize us as slaves and take our donkeys. Prime Minister of all Egypt is inviting you to a feast so he can kidnap your mangy donkeys. Brilliant. Brilliant. (laughs) But it's a distrust. It's the suspicion that comes from a guilty conscience. Fear misinterprets kindness. Have you found that? A guilty conscience can create great pressure. It can cause us to misinterpret words and kindnesses, to see meanings where nothing is intended. And that pressure's there. And if that's the case, don't brush it off. See it for what it is. God refining you. A guilty conscience. Deal with it. And deal with what causes the guilt. Don't just breathe a sigh of relief and think, oh, it's okay, that's not what they meant. God puts his finger on something. Deal with it. An increasing pressure. Secondly, a repeated testing. A repeated testing. 
they have a word with the steward. They explain that, well, actually, we found the money and we brought back twice as much. And, and the steward says, look, it's all right. In fact, actually, a more literal translation of uh, verse 23 would be shalom to you, peace to you. Don't be afraid. Your God, the God of your father, has given you treasure in your sacks. I wonder if these words were given to the steward by Joseph. Or had this man been so influenced by Joseph that he now believed in the true God. More kindness follows. Simeon is brought out. Then the prime minister, Zaphonath Paneah, or Joseph, arrives. I keep calling him his Egyptian name because I want us to grasp that they don't know it's Joseph. They think the prime minister is, is coming to meet with them. And Joseph asks how they are. Literally, he asked about their shalom, their peace. And then he says, is there shalom with your father? Gentle, genuine concern. And he sees Benjamin. And it's too much for him. And after speaking a word of blessing, he rushes out to weep. It's been 22 years. And although, although Joseph under God is being used to test his brothers, to refine his brothers, to put them through the ringer in some sense, see how tender his heart is towards his brothers. Underneath those Egyptian garments is a heart that throbs with love for his brothers. And I think there's something beautiful here. He's not, it's not out of callousness. It's not out of vindictive revenge. It is not a cat playing with a mouse. It is love. And I think that gives us a glimpse too of our God. We see his actions. We feel the pressure of the circumstances that he sovereignly rules. We perhaps feel, oh, why is he allowing this to happen? And that person's making life awkward for me. And this is happening and that's happening. And my conscience is poking at me. And Well, we're perplexed like the brothers would be. But they didn't get to see Joseph go off into a room and weep with compassion for them. And we need to remember that behind, well, as one, as one hymn writer put it, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace behind a frowning providence. He hides a smiling face. Not just simply a smiling face, Joseph has. It's a tear-stained face. He loves these men. And God, although he takes us into hard places, has a deep, deep love for his people. And Joseph comes back out. And he, he orders, he sees the brothers set out in order of age. And they, they're amazed. You know what the odds are? 39,916,800 to 1. They don't, I'm sure, know the odds, but they're literally going, this is weird. How does he know our ages? How does he know? And then Joseph starts to give Benjamin the choice pickings off his own table and gives him five times as much. Now, what's going on? Repeated testing. And in these the last bit of this chapter, the first part of the next chapter, there's a test going on. There's testing. First of all, they're being tested for jealousy. They're being tested for jealousy. He lavishes his full brother, the son of Rachel, 
the favorite wife of Jacob. He lavishes his brother with all of this generosity, with much, much more than all the others. How would they respond? Would there be mutterings? Perhaps mutterings in Hebrew, thinking he'll not understand it. Would he see them tutting and uh, sneering? What was the, was the old attitude that had ruined the brothers, that jealousy? Was it still there? The last line of the chapter is telling. So they feasted and drank freely with him. We're told, essentially, that the feast was a brilliant feast. That nothing ruined it. That they had a great time together. One writer translates it as, So they feasted and became fully content with him. The old jealousy seems to be gone. But there's a second test. There's a second test. Joseph isn't done yet because God isn't done yet. Have they really changed? Because repentance isn't just saying to God, I'm sorry, I did wrong. Repentance is saying to God, change me. Change me and make me different. Are these men different? They've admitted their guilt in a previous chapter, but have they changed? God's not interested in us admitting we're guilty. He's interested in changing us. And the next morning, these men are in for a rude awakening. They are going to be tested, secondly, for brotherly kindness. Brotherly kindness. What a shock it must have been to them. They set off down the road elated. They've got the grain, and they've got Benjamin, and they've got Simeon. We've made it. We've done it. Brilliant. And then come the thundering hooves of the horsemen in pursuit. And accusation, you stole the master's silver cup or silver bowl, whatever it may be translated as. And they, they, they sort of make a whole Egyptian thing of it that he uses for his divining, for his knowing the future. The Egyptians were into all of that. I think we can safely assume Joseph wasn't, but that that's the story he tells to be in character. And they protest their innocence. We know nothing about it. What would we do that for? Didn't we bring silver back to you? We don't have it. If anybody has it, you can put them to death. They're so confident. And the steward won't hear of the death penalty. But he lays the groundwork. The one that has it will be a slave and you can all go. And this is brilliant. Joseph has recreated the original crime. These men sold a son of Rachel into slavery before. And they all got off free. Will they do it again? Have they changed at all? Brilliant from Joseph. And here, he, here the brothers, they're confident that they will be displayed or vindicated. Their innocence will be displayed. And they lower their sacks of grain to the ground and the tension builds. Again, the steward starts with the oldest and works his way down the line. And you can imagine that the tension, uh, a relief and tension, relief and tension. And they come down to the last one and they open the sack. And there is the silver cup at the top of the sack and utter soul-crushing despair. It's in Benjamin's sack. What will he do? Doubtless the steward was told to carefully note their immediate reaction. What would they do? Would there be a conference? What would happen? 
What would their faces say? But they tear their clothes. There was no record of them tearing their clothes when they brought back Joseph's cloak and said, we found this, seems like he's dead. Instead they tore his cloak and roughed it up and dipped it in blood. But now they tear their clothes and they all get onto their donkeys and they all go back. Imagine, I'd like to imagine Joseph looking out a window and seeing the steward coming down the road with the soldiers and there comes one, two, four, five. They're all there. How his heart must have leapt within him when he saw them all coming back. Did he and the steward have a, a quick report, whispered report? And he's heard their reactions. You see, repeated testing comes into their lives to root out sinful attitudes. And God does that with us. To root out sinful attitudes or to deepen our trust. He's refining us. And if repeated testing is going on in you, in your life, keep clinging to God. Keep walking in His ways. These men have changed They have changed and they're keeping walking in the pathway of change. They're not jealous anymore. And when the pressure really came on, they keep walking in God's pathway. Keep walking in God's pathway. And that shows us thirdly, a genuine repentance. A genuine repentance. Here's the the climax of the story. You see... The story is in a sense less about Joseph and more about Judah. Judah is going to be the one from whom, who will lead the nation. He'll be the chief tribe from whom King David will come. From him, Jesus will eventually come. Well, Judah at the start of this story is a disaster. But by the end of it, he's a hero. Because God has changed him. And he steps forward here. And with utmost humility and reverence, he speaks to Joseph, or as he thinks of him, as the prime minister of Egypt. And he gives this poignant, heart-melting, heartfelt speech. It's the longest speech in the book of Genesis. And for a man who didn't care two hoots about his father's feelings when they ran the scam about Joseph, and they claimed that he was dead... For the man who didn't care for his father's honour when he was busy marrying a Canaanite, he now pleads in terms of his father's welfare. Notice how often he refers to his father. His dear father has been uppermost in his mind. He doesn't care about his father's foolish favouritism. He acknowledges that Benjamin is the favourite son. He he speaks in verse 27 as if the other wives and his own sonship don't really count at all. As if his father only had two sons and one is dead. And this one is the only one left. Judah doesn't bridle at it. He speaks movingly of how his father's life is tied to that of the boy. You know, just think how hard it must have been for Joseph to hear this. Judah doesn't know that as he's speaking, it's almost as if he's sticking a knife into Joseph's own heart. How did he hold himself together? And all of this might be seen as a shrewd negotiating ploy, except for the magnificent climax, the closing verses. Judah says, I guaranteed the boy would come back. Now let me be your slave. Take me 
let him go. And the man who hadn't cared about his father's misery before says, how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, don't let me see the misery that would come on my father. Take me, he says. And the end of verse 44, let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave. Let me be the slave. In exactly the same scenario, Judah, who suggested the sale of one of Rachel's sons, stands begging for the life of another. I find it really moving that he does this. Here is real change, genuine repentance. This is what it looks like when God grabs a man or a woman and transforms them. The old way of life, the old way of thinking is gone. Everything is made new. The path to repentance, where God has tightened the screw and backed into corner after corner, has brought this man to his knees in repentance. And he stands here now changed. The old is gone. The new has come. Genuine repentance. Let me finish with three brief applications. What does this mean for us? As well as all the other things that we've learned along the way. Let me give three applications to finish with. One is repent. Repent. Repent is to turn from our sin and to turn to God. It may be that you need to do that to start the Christian life. If you haven't yet done so, do that. Admit your guilt and cry out to God to rescue you. It may be that as a Christian you're walking in ways you shouldn't be and God has been tightening the vice on you. He has been putting you through the refiner's fire. And you might think, well, I I can't change. Judah, could ever that man have changed? But God changed him. Repent. Repent. Secondly, trust. Is that not what Joseph and Jacob are learning? They're learning that God can be trusted. They're learning that they're not wasting their time trusting God. Jacob is saying that God does keep his promises. And does that not give us encouragement even as we think of our own families and perhaps people in our family circles who don't know Jesus? God had made a promise to Jacob. And here we see him many years later keeping that promise. It wouldn't have looked likely that these men would turn to God. But God has been working because he said he would. So let's keep trusting God. And then thirdly, rejoice. Repent, trust and rejoice. Remember how I said at the start that here is a picture of the greatest story ever told. The story of salvation. If you're a Christian, why should you keep on repenting and trusting, turning and trusting? Why should you keep giving yourself to follow Jesus? Well, Judah doesn't only paint a picture of what a repentant person looks like. He paints a portrait of a pleading substitute. Let me stand in his place, Judah says. One day from Judah's family line, someone will come who will say it in an even greater way. He will say it to the one who holds the power of life and death. 
Joseph held the power of life and death. And Judas says to him, let me take his place. Well, before the almighty judge of heaven and earth, the Lord Jesus Christ puts his hand on your shoulder and looks to his father and says, Father, let me take their place. Let me take their place. And I will take their punishment so that they can go free. And that freedom is a life lived of trusting Jesus and walking in his ways, of following him and obeying him. And how we should rejoice as we stand in awe of his much greater sacrifice and substitution. Amen. If you're able, let's stand as we come to God in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you that you do not abandon us, but that you come to us and you poke us in our consciences, you stir us in our hearts, and you work in us to refine us. Father, thank you for that initial moment where you bring us to you. And Father, I pray for anyone here this morning who needs to take that initial step of coming to you and saying, Lord, would you take hold of me and start this refining process? I need you to change me. Father, for those of us who have taken that initial step, we have so much refining still to be done. Many impurities need to be brought out of us. And will you continue to refine us and let us not run from that pressure that you bring in the refiner's fire. And then, Father, we also acknowledge that sometimes it's not that there's sin in us that needs to be burnt off, but that its trust needs to be strengthened. And graces need to be built up. And, O oh Lord God, as you refine us in this way, let us trust you amidst the refining fires, knowing that you have a tender heart towards your people and that you, even as you are responsible for the circumstances we find ourselves in, yet as it were, you are where we can't see you. You are overcome with compassion for us. And Father, I pray that some of your people this morning would know that in particular. You know those who need to know that, Lord. And I pray that they would know it. And Father, I pray for all of us that we would walk in your ways more closely. We thank you for Jesus, the true and better Judah, who said, take me and let them go free. And help us to live in glad-hearted surrender and thankful obedience, walking in his ways. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.